Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Markets remain anxious to start the week with the 10-year Treasury yield briefly going over 5%. We also have S&P 500 futures pointing to a lower open and worries that the Israel-Hamas war escalates into a wider Middle East conflict. Yet we also await GDP data later this week that should confirm that the U.S. economy grew very strongly in Q3, which should exacerbate fears of rates staying higher for longer. Now here to talk about this all with us today to kick off another week. Glad to welcome back the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS chief investment office, Jason Dreho. Uh, Jason, thank you for dropping by here on a Monday morning. A lot to catch our listeners up on. So looking forward to our conversation. Good morning, Dan. It's good to be here. So, Jason, maybe a good starting point is the Fed. We can talk about a bit of a Fed outlook. Now, thinking back to last week, we did hear from Chairman Jerome Powell. He did give a speech at the Economic Club of New York. I'm curious, based on his speech, Jason, and the comments we heard, what should we expect from Fed policy going forward with the next Fed meeting taking place next week? Well, the speech was a real big center point for investors because over the prior roughly 10 days, Ten, a dozen different Fed governors, uh, presidents, you know, senior officials who had been out there giving comments about the state of the economy, also most prominently, like how the rate rise with a 10-year yield up now over 110 basis points just in the past three months, you know, how that could impact Fed policy. And the general take from a number of speakers was that as rates go higher, as financial conditions tighten, that's a reason for the Fed not to have to hike, at least not on November 1st. So the focus is on you know Powell's speech and whether he would sort of affirm that view or maybe kind of push back against that expectation. And his comments ultimately kind of reaffirmed that view. Uh, you know he said that the, you know the Fed remains very much you know data dependent. They're trying to get a read on what's going on in the economy and assessing the data kind of as it comes in, especially in light of the higher rates and what sort of impact that would be. Uh, you know he does expect you know tighter financial conditions that will slow growth, but also acknowledge that policy. You know, it's not that restrictive. I mean, it's hard to kind of argue that when the economy could be growing at, you know, at 4% in the third quarter. So the overall takeaway from the markets was that this was reaffirmed the view that the Fed is likely to be, uh, or, uh, or very unlikely to hike rates on, on November 1st. Uh, the market pricing for that is now less than 5% chance. Uh, so he seemed, you know, you know, kind of the dovish side, maybe even dovish, a little more dovish than other Fed speakers. He also left the door wide open for the rate hikes later on, so whether that is at the December meeting uh, or even in January. And market pricing is really consistent with basically no probability, very low probability on November 1st, still close to 30% chance of one more hike uh, combined between December and January. So that's kind of the, the takeaway in terms of the near-term implications. Uh, but he also had, you know, made some comments about you know the rate rise, a lot of discussion in the marketplace, why have rates have gone up so much, what its impact, uh, and what will its impact be on the economy. Uh, and, and he acknowledged that there are many different things that's driving rates higher, including the fact that you know, growth has been stronger than expected. But he also, there's other exogenous factors, you know, with the focus on the you know, fiscal situation in the U.S. with very large deficits, leading to a lot of supply, questions about a supply and demand imbalance. That's the investors to want to price in more of a risk premium or term premium to your yields. Uh, so there's a, whether it's endogenous, rates higher because growth is good and that's just sort of catching up to good growth data, or it could be you know, due to these exogenous factors. 
Um, you know, and, and Powell did make a comment that he thought it was maybe a little bit more due, or a good chunk of that was due to some of these exogenous factors. In which case, if the economy does slow, um, that endogenous driver of rates higher, that's going to, you know, we'll do a little bit, but if there's these exogenous factors that have really been why rates have gone higher, that's not going to be impacted by growth slowing. So, therefore, if growth slows, rates may not decline that much. And that was just an interesting interpretation or comment that he made, given the sort of interrelationship between you know, growth, uh, you know, rates, and inflation, and the Fed policy. So, Jason, running with this idea of interrelationships between higher rates servicing as a substitute for Fed hikes and that they will help to slow growth is something you actually wrote about in a recent blog that titles Spherification. So to expand on that, Jason, what exactly do you mean by these interrelationships? Well, there's always you know, interrelationships between kind of growth the interest rates and policy, and they tend to be kind of circular. Like they kind of feed into in, into themselves. You know, this is why you know you get to sort of an equilibrium where everything's sort of in balance. And when there's a shock to the system, you know, they kind of cascade through with different implications. <laughs> and what we can kind of trace through as a logical you know, sequence is that we know that the economy is holding up you know, quite well. Uh, we get third quarter GDP growth on the um, uh, the 26th, Thursday, October 26th. Consensus right now is at 4.3%, which is more than double the rate for the second quarter and basically the first quarter as well. So this move higher, you know, this in strong growth has contributed to higher rates. Not so much, you know, because the the market is you know pricing for more Fed hikes, but it's not priced it's priced out rate cuts. Meaning, you know, versus where we were three months ago, the number of cuts that the market is expecting from the Fed in 2024 and 2025 has gone down about 150 basis points. So the Fed really is higher for longer. It's not surprising the 10-year yield has to go higher as a result. Now, the result of these higher rates is, is led to kind of tighter financial conditions because one of the key inputs to estimates of financial conditions is where is the 10-year Treasury yield. So there's some thought that the move higher in 10-year Treasury yields of over 100 basis points, that's the equivalent of like two to three Fed rate hikes. And that's the logic of why, you know, the market and then the Fed sort of said we perhaps don't need to do another hike because the market essentially is doing the heavy lifting for us. Then the feedback loop was all that these higher rates and tighter financial conditions should ultimately kind of slow growth, uh, which was anticipated already because of you know the tightening that's already occurred and the higher rates that have already occurred. But this is incremental tightening, so this should kind of slow growth. Yeah, I think it's not really in dispute that there are these interrelationships, you know, between growth, uh, you know, uh, interest rates. And Fed policy, um, I think the real kind of question is like, what's the magnitude? Uh, what is really driving, you know, the, the force? Because if these are things are kind of going in a circle, some factor kind of has to be driving and amplifying it or perhaps, you know, diminishing it. And I think that's where some of the uncertainty lies is, yes, there's interrelationships, but exactly what is the nature of these interrelationships? So, Jason, given this circularity between growth, interest rates, Fed policy, what are the possible outcomes that you and the market see here? Well, there are many possible scenarios. They all focus on three. Maybe they really kind of come down to the key assumption that you're making as an investor or policymaker about the extent to which the rise in rates is an endogenous response to stronger growth because growth is good. Rates should be higher as a result. Um, or is it due to exogenous factors such as like the supply and demand imbalance for the demand for treasuries, uh, concerns over large deficits, you know, in terms of further feeling those supply concerns leading to higher term premium. Like, which is, I know, how much of this rate rise is the breakdown between some of these endogenous good growth stories versus endogenous factors? 
So one sort of scenario is that if you make the assumption that you know, most of the rate rise was endogenous, meaning it was all because of good growth, well, this actually means that perhaps the economy really shouldn't slow that much because rates have gone higher, because rates have gone higher because the economy is, is strong. And that actually then creates a risk that you know the economy won't slow, inflation will get sticky. This then has to do more later on. Hiking, not just one more time, but maybe like restarting the hiking cycle with three more hikes. And if that happens, that increases the chances of a hard landing for the economy later into 2024. That's one scenario. The second scenario is that Powell is right that most of the rate rise was exogenous uh, and that growth will slow because of higher rates. You know, but because uh, it's exogenous move in rates, rates won't decline as growth slows. That increases, I'd say, the kind of the breakage risks in the financial system, meaning like higher default rates, problems in funding markets, because now you have a slower economy dealing with higher rates. Um, so there's there's a risk there. Then there's a third scenario, which, which is really kind of assumes that you know most of the rate rise was endogenous, but not entirely. So growth will slow because of the exogenous rise uh, of rates, let's say 50 basis points, just to put some number on it. Uh, the movement of rates was due to these exogenous factors. That will cause growth to slow. Um, that 50 basis point rise for exogenous reasons won't go away, but endogenous rise in rates, that will kind of moderate. And that's important because you get growth slowing, but rates will decline, and that reduces the sort of this breakage risk. So it's a little bit more consistent with kind of a soft landing scenario. So this third one is sort of the best option. It's the one that we think will play out. But at this point in time, um, you know, all three, among other scenarios, are still very much on the table. So, Jason, let's bring this all back to the investment landscape. What does this dynamic mean for the markets, and how do you feel that investors should be responding? Well, there's definitely high sort of anxiety, skittishness, nervousness among investors about these sort of uncertain macro dynamics, trying to figure out what's, how this is going to you know, play out. And we haven't even really touched on all what the, the potential consequences of the you know, Israel-Hamas war so escalated to big, broader regional conflict. If you look at then of the economic data, there's not a lot of signs of you know slowing growth, and rates certainly haven't declined yet. So all the scenarios, you know, you could say they're on the table. The question is like how will they they play out? Uh, and this, therefore, and this uncertainty and anxiety is kind of one way you can see it in the marketplace is the fact that the VIX, you know, volatility, volatility index, you know, the Wall Street's kind of fear gauge is now around 22. It's at the highest level since mid-March, approximately, when Silicon Valley Bank went under. Uh, so that gives you an idea, like, you know, the markets are anxious then. That's kind of where we are now. Another measure I like to look at is it's called the, it's the VVIX. It's the volatility of volatility. Uh, it's a, so it's a, one way it kind of proxies for not just volatility overall, but sort of the fatness of the tails of, the, like, you know, kind of upside and downside, particularly the downside. And that measure is also the highest it's been since March. Uh, and if you go back really like the last year and a half, since the, the Fed started hiking rates in March of 2022, there's only been a couple brief periods where it's been at this level. So what this volatility measures are really telling us is that the market's definitely concerned about sort of bigger tail risks, primarily kind of a downside risk. And they go back to scenarios one and two, where one of the scenarios is that the Fed just has to keep hiking more because the economy doesn't slow and that increases uh you know, hard landing possibility. The second scenario was that the economy slows and rates stay high, and that causes more breakage risk. And so I think you're, you're seeing the market the pricing and the possibility of that happening, even if their base case still at the moment is, you know, a soft landing scenario over the next, you know, 12 months. So given that uncertainty, that's why you've seen the markets being, you know, quite choppy. 
but until we get some kind of clarity on these feedback loops and ultimately, you know, is the economy slowing while rates kind of come down in a more reasonable way, um, that gives comfort and kind of provides a sort of stability and a floor to risk assets, we're going to kind of continue this environment for the time being. But ultimately, I think we, our view is that the more optimistic of these scenarios, that growth and rates will decline without too much breakage you know, for the economy and financial markets. That's the most likely outcome. That scenario is good for high-quality bonds because rates decline, but that's good for their both yield and total return component. But ultimately, we think it's good for equities, especially some of the laggards in the market. I think the timing on that, you know, it could take a while for it to play out. I think the key things to watch for, at least near term, is the November 1st FOMC meeting. Uh, you know, the comments with the disinformation that, that Powell gives uh, on that day, but he's probably not going to say a lot new versus what his speech was last week. But also a key thing is on November 1st, the Treasury will announce its uh, refunding requirements for the fourth quarter. The surprise to the upside in, in uh, the summer, and that was part of what kicked off a little bit of the rate rise earlier on. The market's now sort of braced for some negative news there. If that turns out to be a positive surprise, that can help you know rates get a bit of a bid. And then in early November, we'll start to get the October data, uh, and that might some, give some indications that, yes, finally, the economy is starting to slow down from a really hot pace during the summer. And that would actually be relief to the market that we're starting to see some moderation, rates come down, and that can provide a more supportive macro environment for, for risk assets to get um, you know, a bid as we go into year-end and into the early next year. Now, if that is to materialize, I think those anxieties will remain elevated. Uh, so even though good news is good overall, it's still sort of some way not great news for the market. It sounds like, Chase, had a lot of near-term catalysts to be mindful of. It will be interesting to see how they impact the broader market. So do look forward to following up with you in the coming weeks to keep our listeners informed and, of course, continue to provide guidance on how they should position accordingly. Though, again, for our listeners today, I do want to point you to Jason's blog, which he has been making reference to during our conversation today that title spherification and if you are a client of UBS please be sure to reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of Jason's blog directly though again today we have been speaking with head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS chief investment office Jason Dreho Uh, Jason thank you again for your time today wish you a nice week ahead and looking forward to picking back up with our conversation again next week You're welcome, and have a great week. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.